to have another Down the Hatch podcast. Today's topic is SLP solidarity, having difficult or challenging conversations with colleagues. And I would very much like for everybody to please introduce yourself. We can start with Alicia. I'm Alicia, a PhD student in the Rehabilitation Science Program at the University of Florida under Dr. Ianessa Humbert. I'm a speech pathologist for the past seven years. And Ed. <laughs> okay. Uh, my name is Ed Bice. I am a speech-language pathologist as well. Currently, uh, the current position I have is as a clinical program consultant for an SCMG biofeedback product. And I also work in acute care on the weekends. And I have been a speech-language pathologist for many years and have been treating swallowing since about 1991. So a few days. <laughs> and I'm Dan Weinstein. I'm uh, in California at UCSF Medical Center. I'm the supervisor of speech pathology, and I've been here a little over a year, uh, originally from the East Coast, and definitely learning a lot about uh, different types of communication versus, uh, in terms of East Coast versus West Coast. <laughs> There's definitely a difference. <laughs> Uh, one question that I have for you guys, um, actually going to hold off on the question, but what I am going to do is I'm going to just give a little background on the purpose of the call. Um, as you all know, um, SLP solidarity is important, probably in some settings more than others. In general, the most common place that speech pathologists work are either in the school system or a medical institution. Maybe not so much private practice, correct me if I'm wrong. But um, in general, part of the issue that we've been having as a field is that we tend to be considered adjunct at whatever setting we're in. If we're in the school system, we know that teachers and principals dominate in terms of numbers and um, power and authority and that kind of thing. And then in the medical setting, speech pathology is not its own department. You think about it having its standard to have an ENT or otolaryngology or gastroenterology department, but to have an EN, to have a speech pathology true department that's not under a larger department is pretty rare. So what that means is that we don't have the same kind of decision-making abilities that others have. Um, it probably means that we don't have a, our own autonomy for a budget, and we often need to band together as speech pathologists in order to ensure that our voice is heard. So that means SLP solidarity means a lot more for us. And I'm going to give a brief example that I'm going to ask you guys to just jump in. And I'm going to say why I why we specifically wanted Ed and Dan on this particular podcast. Well, one thing um, that often happens if you work, for instance, in a rehab department, in more places than one that I've worked, I've heard speech pathologists complain that uh, PTs and OTs get just what they want and SLPs just don't. You know, an OT will order something that's $100,000 for mobility and a speech pathologist just wants, you know, a Boston naming test for a few hundred bucks and has to beg for it, right? Um, but then oftentimes a speech pathologist in that 
arena together don't always agree. There isn't a lot of solidarity in terms of how we're going to voice our concerns together. So the reason that I, Alicia and I thought it would be great to ask Ed and um, Dan to be a part of this is because we know that they um, have had supervisory roles and we know that you all have worked in a number of different kinds of settings. We also know that you tend to be more outspoken um, individuals who do not have an issue with um, saying your opinion, even if it might be controversial. And so we certainly didn't want anybody too timid, um, but we did certainly want somebody with a range of um, expertise with talking to other professionals. What do you guys think about the current state of SLP solidarity in your experience? So I'll go first. As you alluded, I think that we all have such a variety of opinions that we've done without technology or materials for so long that we've kind of acquiesced to this idea that we don't deserve to have anything. And so we don't stand as a group because most people's experience is that they have to do something with nothing. And so there's this feeling that if I go ask for something, I'm causing trouble or I'm making a problem. And so it's very difficult to get everyone to band together to say, yes, we can't do our jobs without this because everyone is so diverse in their way of thinking of what is needed and what they want to do. I think it's almost a feeling of selfishness. Like, oh, I don't need to ask for that. No, I'll be fine. (laughs) I, I think, I don't know where we got this. It's ingrained where it's like, you know, asking for something is like, oh, it's asking too much. It's too much. Um, but I agree with you, Ed. I think that, that that mentality has been rooted in our profession for a while. Yeah, I mean, I, I especially reading on Facebook, I think everyone agrees, you know, we need modified barium swallows. We need fees for our patients. But, you know, administration keeps saying no. And and I think that the problem is that we accept that as as an answer. And I just don't understand how, um, you know, if, if you're really being serious about your profession and treating patients, why it's acceptable. And I have to say, I'm really lucky in the um, position I'm in, that even though my, um, my boss is a PT, she gets it. You know, she understands, you know, we need scopes. We need um, the equipment that, um, you know, we certainly don't take for granted, but we need it um, to see patients. And... Um, I think that we don't know how to sell it and we give up uh, a lot of the times. So can we talk a little bit about an example of something that speech pathologists might have difficulty asking for? But just before we do, Alicia, I think what you said is probably um, uh, close to what a lot of people are thinking. But even before they think, oh, it's too much, they're probably already thinking, we're not going to get it. I think they might spend time putting themselves as a lower rung so they live as a lower rung. Meaning, if we all know that speech pathologists don't get what they want, why bother ask? And it's that it's that don't ask thing that is an issue. With NIH grants, a lot of times they say, the grant that will never get funded is the one that's never submitted. That's a common phrase that I hear when people are thinking, oh, these grants are so hard to get. 
it's really hard to get a research grant and they always say the grant that is guaranteed to never get funded is the one that's not submitted so that's that's something to consider as well where speech pathologists often don't ask because well it's we're never going to get it anyway um, and I often hear rehab directors say, speech pathologists don't ask. I mean, the PTs, they're in our face. They're asking all the time. They actually expect to use these tools. They say we cannot function without these tools, but the speech pathologists often don't agree on what the tool should be. And so let's move to what speech pathologists might be asking for. And Dan, you mentioned that, and that is what about the whole concept of the fact that uh, we might have disagreements in terms of what is needed. And you mentioned imaging. And I often, often hear young speech pathologists who have moved to some you know, medical institution and they learned in their classes that imaging is important to be able to identify certain things. Yet, when they get there, they find out it's not standard practice. And they're like, wait, you, how, how do you know that there's an osteophyte by listening to this guy's neck? And everyone's like, oh, we, we can just tell. We can just tell. And of course, in that situation, you're not going to get people who are all going to get together and say, we're not going to take it. Let's all go to administration. Because then that requires the speech pathologists who've been listening at Bones to say, actually, I don't know what I'm listening to. You have to get people to disengage from their current practice before they will join you. And that, to me, is the root of the issue, that to agree on something, you have to admit that maybe you might not have been doing something correctly. And I think the analogy that I've been using, I think, to, to help people understand uh, specifically for why we need imaging uh, fees and modified barium swallows is if you compare a clinical swallow evaluation to just a clinical examination by a physician, um, you know, the, the doctor will do a series of, you know, tests or screens, listen um, with a stethoscope, um, do a cranial nerve exam, um, test reflexes, but ultimately um, they need to decide on what tests they need to run on that patient. And without running those tests, how could they possibly diagnose and manage the patient's condition? So I first try to get people uh, level set in terms of what is a clinical swallow uh, clinical swallow evaluation, um, what can and uh, what can you determine from it, and I, I think that's just the the first step because if there's only one person out of the group asking for fees or an MBS, then how is the you know administrator going to take you seriously when oh well the rest of the uh, the SLPs can do without? Yeah, and I think in our job in our profession. What are things that should be an expectation and what are things that are gifts, right? That maybe that we don't necessarily need to do our job, but make our job easier that aren't essential. So I think one of the problems is when you view everything as, oh, it's a gift. Oh, it's nice to have versus no, we have to have this. This is essential. It's it a blessing. Nice. Or I've heard people say, I'm blessed because I'm at a place where we can get fees. And it's just like, I don't think God is just shining down on you and like not the other people. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know. I, you know, something I always think about is I, I wish we would stop calling the bedside an evaluation because it makes it seem like it can just always stand on its own. 
and that the modified is extra. <laughs> like, but it's, I think it's semantics almost. It's like the it's a screen. It's a screen for something else, or it can stand alone. That's almost the shots fired. Almost the shots fired. But wait, I just <laughs> I just want to make sure that we're not getting on the topic of we need to have imaging. Because I feel us going down that same soapbox. But so no, hard. no, I mean, no, I hear you. Um, Ed, you were going to say something? <laughs> yes, but I, and I think I was just going to reiterate what you said. The first, I think the first step in all of this is for us to be able to admit that what we've done to this point has been insufficient. Right. And so to, for all of us to get together and say, yes, the fact that we've settled for X, Y, and Z, whether it be listening for thumps and thuds or whether it be not having therapy tools, that we have to say and admit that we've settled for too long as a, to begin yeah. to develop solidarity. Yeah. And I think if, if we all, I, I hear your point, Ines, and I know that, you know, we don't want to belabor, belabor the point of, you know, uh, we need fees and MBS, but I think that in order for us to, um, you know, have solidarity, we all have to be in agreement, like you said, that, that those are needed. And then, right. you know, to the point I was trying to make earlier that, you know, we just don't know how to ask for it. But I think it's important to have these kinds of conversations so that we we know what to say when the first answer is no. So it sounds to me like we one thing we agree on is that um, we definitely agree that as speech pathologists, we probably didn't get a whole lot of education on how to advocate for ourselves, how to know what is supposed to be standard and what is not supposed to be what is supposed to be oh it would be nice to have let's take this issue that we all seem to be very passionate about which is how do we all get on the same page that imaging should be widespread and routinely used now the reason i say widespread and routinely used is because you have people who say oh i have access to imaging if i need to do a study i can do it and then i say oh how frequently do you do it they're like well i only ever really need to do two or three and i'm like where do you work acute care no i don't understand that already i'm struggling right now so it's <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like so you only have yeah. two people a week who could ever need a swallow study yeah i mean i never have an issue finding slots well maybe the issue is that they have like you're relying too much on clinical. So it's part it's part of the conversation is getting to the point where we can agree that it doesn't the first thing I like to try to express on this topic if we're going to have this difficult conversation is just because you do more fluoros, it doesn't mean that you're a bad clinician. You couldn't figure it out without fluoro. It's not like a calculator for math, guys, for a reading, writing, for basic addition. <laughs> and by the way, I have no shame that I need to sometimes add things on my phone. I'm like, wait, three plus three. Oh, crap. Let me get my phone. That's just me. But I'm just saying, like, if you need fluoro to confirm aspiration, that's not a problem. You're not you're not a bad clinician. And by the way, if you haven't been confirming aspiration with a floral with with fees, then just change your ways. You don't have to like, you know, be a bag lady and carry that that shame with you forever either. It's not like Game of Thrones shame. But you know, so I've been I've been treating this population for my whole career and like sometimes you just know. I just know. I don't need flora. <laughs> I you just so, know. I've just been seeing these patients my whole career and you know, sometimes it's just a gut feeling and I'm, I'm, I bring them to Floro and I'm like, I'm right. But that's great, right? So that's what it should be. When you do a clinical evaluation, 
right? You do have I'm a sense. I'm being sarcastic, by the way. <laughs> no, but I no, I've heard I've heard people say oh, that, right? And so, you know, you should have an idea based on your clinical assessment, right? I, this is what I, it. right? Yeah. This is what I think I'm going to see. But if you don't confirm it, then you could be treating something that doesn't even exist. And I think people just have a hard time understanding that. It's it's not about you know whether you're right or wrong. I mean, there are some. Sometimes where I assume something on a clinical and do a modified barium swallow and it's completely different, but thank God I checked. Right. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. So in this situation, and I think this comes up a lot in facilities where you cross cover a lot, where you see some, a therapist did a clinical exam and they said, um, patient has delayed initiation of the swallow signs of aspiration within, I'm going to put on nectar thick liquid and they give them exercises and you come that that's the, what you read in the note and you come in and see that patient for therapy. You said, Hey, can you go check on Mr. Smith in room four? And you're like, yeah, absolutely. Ah, I saw him yesterday. Great. I'll go check on him. And before you enter the room, you start reading the note and the patient's physiology has been diagnosed at the bedside. And a treatment plan has been made. What do you do in that situation? Do you so, so I live the situation? Do you do your thing, or do you address the therapist? Because this is something I run into a lot, and I have to make this decision a lot. Yeah, I live the same thing. I I, I have the same dilemma because I only cover weekends, right? Oh, so, so Ed, this is your life. <laughs> <laughs> this is your life. I, I I PRN as a PhD student a lot. And I'm, I'm with you on that. This has become way more prevalent to me than it ever has in my career. Right. And when I think about this, and so it's like, no, I don't think a confrontation with my colleague would be the right way. But I think that we need to start having discussions, not about what we do, which is what I feel like happens. It's like, well, this is what I do. And, and I'm really at the point where I really don't care what someone does. <laughs> I want to, I want to know what is best practice and why have you made the decisions to do this? Not why that, not just the fact that you do it. So right. what are you basing this on? And I think this is a big piece that's missing when we try to seek solidarity is everyone just brings to the table what they do. Right. This and, is my approach. Right. And, and it really doesn't matter. That's such a good point, Ed. I'm so glad you said that because the point here is really to change the way that people view their own practice. This is not having a difficult conversation with a colleague or having solidarity is not all about coming to the table to defend yourself. It's not all about um, trying to point fingers at somebody. It's trying to figure out where we can agree and where we where it's a draw, right? Where we might not agree, but it's okay to not agree there because we've all stated our rationales and yours is logical sense for you. Mine is logical sense for me, but we just have a difference in clinical approach, but they both make good rational sense that could benefit the patient at the end of the day, right? So some, some ENTs like, um, um, like Botox, others like myotomies, like they have success that they have built something on based on some decision-making I'm hoping. Um, I'm hoping that it's, you know, has to do with ultimately their, they know what the goal is. But my, I, I really like that you said, rather than just coming to the table and say, well, I do, you know, I do eat, eat, eat stem, like, and it's, I find success. 
it's sort of like, okay, that's fine. Um, can you tell me more about success? And that, that question, can you define success, is sometimes viewed as a confrontational question, and it shouldn't be because you are here to help the patient get better. So if asking you how you define success makes your 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 cat hair sort of come up the back of your neck, then we are way we are all way too defensive. Well, and I think that the reason why we're defensive is because we don't know the answer to that question. How yeah. are we are are we don't feel comfortable? You know, well, I changed their diet. Well, I did, you didn't do an instrumental in the beginning, and now you've been doing NMES for six weeks, and now you changed their diet. So how is that success? Right. And I think that um, a good way to to deal with those kind of issues is to just have one one example. So Ed, when you go in and you see a patient and you want to do an instrumental for uh, for that patient that hasn't had one yet, um, do, do you usually get to do that? Oh, yes. yes yeah. That's not a problem. And then so do you go back to the clinician and say, hey, I did the instrumental and this is actually what I found in it and um, uh, it's a little different than what you were thinking. Is that the kind of conversation that you have? And, and does that become eye-opening to them? I've, I've found those kind of examples helpful because then they so, can actually see it and you can have a discussion about it as opposed to being, you know, yeah. accusatory or you should have done it this. It, or It makes it less about the therapist and more about the patient. Mm -hmm. It's about where your conversation is directed. So it's not like you did this. It's like, this is what the patient did. Mm -hmm. I, you know, like during this instrumental, the patient showed me this. And it's, it, I think when you remove that focus on the therapist and allow them where you're looking at the patient together, even though you're kind of address, you're just addressing it in a way that's patient centered, not therapist centered. That's a great idea. So instead of saying, if someone says, I see a lot of success with this, instead of me saying, oh, how did you define a success? Then I should be saying, oh, what did the patient do that was successful? Exactly. It's so little, but I think that language takes the pressure and the confrontation out of the mix, but with the same goal. And what you I, I think people get really, really like the conversation ends immediately as soon as somebody feels like they're being attacked. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it's like then you're not gonna accomplish anything. Um, a strategy that I use a lot is um, it's the power of the pen. So I, in my documentation, will say things frequently like, um, patient was, you know, recommended a video fluoroscopic swallowing study to objectively assess swallowing physiology due to inability to detect at the bedside. Something that's just kind of expanding that language a little bit to just reiterate why I'm making that recommendation and why it's more beneficial than a bedside. And it's, it's not going on this soapbox by any means, but I, you can insert language in your documentation that when somebody reads it, they say, oh, okay, yeah. Or a physician that reads it and says, wait a minute, <laughs> you're telling me you can't, you're saying that you can't diagnose pharyngeal impairments at the bedside? No, no, you cannot. <laughs> and that's such a good point, um, Alicia, to have that physician support that oftentimes in, yeah. um, you know, when you're in a rehab department, you don't, you know, when you're not with ENT, you don't have that physician support, but all it takes is, is kind of the early adopters, either the other speech pathologists in the group, or there's one that kind of, 
gets it and is also on your side and can kind of model that behavior for the rest of the staff. But also, you know, at, at UCSF, uh, our lung transplant population, our lung transplant surgeon says, every single one of my patients is going to get a fees because I know how um, crucial it is mm-hmm. that these patients do not aspirate anything into their new lungs, right? So once we had um, that that physician support, it was much easier to get um, fees equipment, time for fees training of all the staff. Um, yeah. and, and so that's, that's key. And it doesn't take like a massive in-service. It's simple things like whenever I ask a physician, especially now I... I I worked at Hopkins for a long time, but now I work in facilities where I don't have relationships with the physicians. So every time I need a physician to put in an order for a, for a barium swallow study, I always say, and there's and instead of saying, hey, can you put in an order for a barium swallow study? And they say, yep, sure. And they put it in, right? I say, hey, patient X is showing signs of aspiration, but at the bedside, of course, we can't really detect physiology. And I'd really like to do a barium swallow study so I can see why they're aspirating or why I think they're aspirating and to objectively look at that. And they're like, oh, okay. And just in that conversation, they've started to understand the purpose of it Mm -hmm. and what the differences are and the limitations. And it's little things like that that go a long way, I think. I think some people get intimidated by this idea that they feel like they need to do this grassroots overhaul, but you don't, you can just have slip these things in in, in normal conversation to educate. And I think that can be really powerful. And I also think that at academic medical centers, you know, there is some intimidation because. Oh, we're, we're talking with doctors, but at the same time, those are doctors in training. You know, we, we are licensed. We are the specialists in dysphagia and speech language pathology. We're there for them, you know, to learn from. So if yeah. we say, hey, this is the standard practice, then they're going to go through their residency believing that, hey, this is standard practice. So we have the ability to, to shape, you know, future doctors so that we don't have so much, um, you know, getting in the way in the future. For sure. And I will say, in my situation, I find the physicians much more easy to convince or to explain a concept to them than I do my colleagues in speech pathology. I, I know the last time that I worked, I had a, a discussion because um, a physician said, why didn't you change someone's diet to blah? This is what we typically do with this kind of patient. And so I went through the literature concerning the risk and benefits of thickened liquids. And then I discussed that the patient had made this autonomous decision to, based on uh, an informed consent, to to proceed with thin liquids. And the doctor was like, oh, okay, that's fine. But the speech pathologist was not fine with that decision. You know, they were very upset that the patient wasn't on thickened liquids and actually changed them to thickened liquids when they returned to work. Wow. Um, that's so, so hard. Yes. That, that, those are hard. Like those are hard conversations to have. And every one of us has been there and I don't want to act like, oh, well, this is what I do. And, and come on, we just need to have those conversations. They're really hard to have. <laughs> yes, they are. It's very difficult. And, and I think this is why we have difficulty asking for what we need because of this divide 
in in understanding and i would say i would say so you know there are therapists like me that when i learned how to treat dysphagia the only thing we needed was a laryngeal mirror and a tongue depressor because we you know we stimulated everyone's fascial arches and had them wag their tongue and so <laughs> if, if you know I, so i could still be living there Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people who are still living there are being mentors to people who are new to the field. And, and this I is, think, creates a great divide. Yeah. I, I was just going to say, I think that as a profession, we need to get away from, you know, wanting to, I, I mean, I get that we're therapists and I get that we're uh, compassionate, them, but we can't be looked at as the fix-it profession. And I think that that's one thing, you know, that we have to... Uh, you know, take a step back and look at, you know, it's not black and white. You know, if the patient is aspirating, we can't just look at it as, you know, safest diet. Sometimes there is no safest diet. And I think once we understand that as clinicians, um, you know, it's easier to explain to the patients and their families and the doctors as well. And we have to stop looking at it as, oh my gosh, the, you know, nectar thick liquid is a cure-all. If that were true, then we wouldn't have things like down the hatch and we wouldn't have the dysphagia research society and we wouldn't have all this research and these conferences. And I, I, it would just be a flow chart. It would be, if you put them on, give them this exercise or do this, put them on nectar thick liquids and then they're fine. So can I, can I just say, I've been listening to a lot of what you guys have been saying. And one thing that I seem, I, I pulled out is obviously part of the issue that we're having is that this is much more complicated than we want to give it credit for it, you know there are many possible routes to getting a, a to giving good dysphagia management but what we're not arguing at this point is we're not all here arguing that we need to have exactly the same view what we seem to be arguing about is are arguing for is that we have the a capacity to listen and to contribute to a discussion with the goal of improving patient care. And Dan, I really like what you said about this is not, we need to step away from being, thinking that we're the fix-it profession. Um, and part of the issue, I one thing that could probably happen among groups of SLPs who maybe realize, you know, we probably could come together and have a bit more agreement is they probably need to sit down and first say, what is our mission? What is our goal? What do we all agree on? What is our unified purpose here? And if they can agree on that, they might say, well, how do we all play a role in that? Maybe it's not the exact same role, but how do we all attempt to achieve that goal? And how can we talk about the goal we're trying to achieve in a way where we like we start the critical thinking and dysphagia management course with this slide that says safe place to talk because I'm getting ready to like bust some myths and like throw some bad literature in people's faces saying that SLPs need to look in the mirror. And a lot of times people will say, I'm so glad you started with that slide because I know I would have not said something if that slide wasn't there. So people need permission to be wrong. People need permission to um, point out their their flaws or their concerns or their insecurities. Um, but if you're right, if we think of ourselves as the fix-it profession, then our goal is black and white. Like we either fixed it or we didn't. And we get up, upset emotionally if we don't. I'm sure you guys have seen those Facebook posts, posts when someone's angry that they walked in the room and someone handed a patient thin liquids and all these people were like, oh, I hate that damn nursing staff or whatever. And it's like, wait a minute, or the patient chugged this. It's like, guys, um, 
endocrinologists don't stomp away when their patients have Snickers in their hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's like they will absolutely walk, they will walk yep. into a doctor's appointment like on the verge of a stroke with like fries in their hand, and the physician's like. It's just kind of like it's a known entity. We They know their population. They know their population is prone to this. Like oncologists know that their patients are still smoking. You know what I mean? Right. It, it's a thing that they do. They're not trying to change human behavior at its at its most um, at its core in terms of having needs and those kinds of things. They're trying to say, as a physician, this is what I recommend. These are the best practices for you in this situation. Am I going to condemn you and stomp off because you were smoking through your stoma when I walked from my car to the building? No. Right. And I think that goes back, I think, to the topic of this podcast, which is, you know, communication, right? I, ironically, as speech pathologists, we never really get um, coursework in interpersonal communication um, or even, you know, the way that doctors will have doctoring class. We never really get um, courses in how to talk to each other and how to talk to patients, right? right. We get this we get this really abstract um, course on dysphagia and aspiration. So if you see aspiration, you go to nectar thick liquids and we, we forget the patient. We forget to talk to the patient. And, you know, just, just to bring it back to, to communication, um, you know, we have to involve the patient in our clinical decision making as well. You know, so even if we have all the information and, and we think we're doing it right, if we if we leave out the patient, then what success really have we had? Right. So education, our formal education is probably another area where it's sort of like um, the job. And then there's the other stuff that impact the job that you didn't even know what would become the job. So I'm thinking about the fact that, yeah, you know, you're supposed to go in there. You're supposed to figure out what the problem is and try to fix it. Everybody kind of knows that's what we're supposed to try to do um, is address these issues. But then we forget about all of the um, the, the fact that we might not even know what our role is in a, in a medical institution. We might not even know what it's like when a physician expects you to have a, a certain diet and you don't even agree with that person. So these are the, um, it's almost like the curricular and extracurricular stuff of college. Like, yeah, you got to pass algebra, but you also have to learn how to be in, grow up and become an adult in college too, but they don't have a class on adulting, right? <laughs> yeah. Right, and I think Pam Pam Smith at uh, Bloomsburg University. I was with her recently, and and that she she said something that has stuck in my head, and it's that as we select students to be in the speech pathology program, most of the students that are being selected are very type A. You know, they're all very good grades. They've done all of this wonderful thing as an undergraduate, and we're selecting them. And then when we get a profession full of type A people, <laughs> we, we all want to think that we've arrived and that we what we're doing is right. And we don't want to be challenged and pushed because we're already doing what's right. And and then dang researchers like you, Ianissa, and Katrina Steele, like in the, the last, uh, in the discussion that you had about the tongue in dysphagia grand rounds where Katrina said, you know, it's like pushing off the side of the pool. And, you know, so I've had to have this whole email dialogue with her to understand what she's saying to change. And she's changed my whole paradigm in the last couple of weeks about what I need to be doing with the tongue, you know, but, but we have to be willing to give up our type A personalities to learn 
so that we can create more solidarity in, in, in a position of how we understand things today and give it up if we learn something new tomorrow. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because it, it relates to the last Down the Hatch podcast about education where we say things like, um, you know, how is it possible for someone with a 4.0 to not be able to critically think through something without knowing there might not be just one answer. And I think what you said is key that sure, these are type A people, but my my thought is that perhaps the goal of education was always to derive at the one final best perfect answer, as opposed to maybe stumbling on your way as you learn. And so I'm worried that that impedes our ability to actually learn on the job where, hey, mistakes can be detrimental. They can be very you know, they could kill somebody in a hospital. So the likelihood that you're going to admit to it in the hospital is far less than even in the classroom, right? And so it's sort of that, yeah, we can be wrong. We will make mistakes. We will recommend the wrong diet. We will not identify the impairment. We might not even know what the impairment is. You know what I'm saying? And so, whoa, now we have sirens, eh? No helicopters this time. That's my, that's <laughs> on my end. I'm sorry. I'm right across the street from UVA Medical Center. <laughs> No, it's kind of a, it's funny in the background. It's, it's almost appropriate because. I just talked about killing people. No, <laughs> one, one of us will probably be seeing that patient as they get extubated on Monday. <laughs> That's you, Ed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think, yes, that this is why we call speech pathology a practice rather than an arrival. You know, we're, we're practicing and we have to realize mm-hmm. that we don't have all the answers and we're practicing with the answers that we do have to come up with maybe new answers tomorrow. It really doesn't matter how long you've been practicing. If, if you're not learning anything new, if you're not going to conferences and you're you know, not willing to have discussions or you know, change the way that you practice, I mean, compare it to a doctor. Would you really want to go to a doctor who was doing things the same way he or she was doing 20, 30 years ago? No, right? And so, uh, you know, speech pathologists for some reason think that, you know, as soon as they're done their clinical fellowship, there's nothing more to learn. And, right. you know, the same way that, you know, doctors, um, they hold M&M. They learn from their mistakes. I was just going to say that. I was going to say, should speech pathologists, as soon as you're done, so I'm glad you said that, should we have routine M&Ms? Do you want to describe what that is? And Sure. So if, if there's a... Um, something, a negative outcome that happens, you know, the doctors will meet to review the case to determine, you know, what went wrong, what could be done differently the next time. And as far as I know, thing, right, exactly. It's not to blame. It's to say, how did we let this happen? How did the system make this happen? What failed in this? Yeah, what What failed failed and how can we fix it? And M&M stands for? Morbidity and mortality. Yep. I just want to make sure people aren't thinking it's candy. Yeah. Well, I like, <laughs> like the phrase, you know, to piggyback off that, there's a phrase that says, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And I think that's how we should view our practice, which is that, and what it means is discovering truth by building on previous discoveries, right? It's an evolving system. It's why we do research. It's why we seek out people that have expertise in certain areas, why we ask questions, why we question things, because it's not a, you have arrived, like you said, Ed, now you have all the knowledge and now you can't make a mistake because you have a license and you see patients. It's, it's such a, it's such a bad mentality for patient care. And I think our, our field can't evolve that way, that we need to question each other 
and ourselves and what we do in the practice. And, and that's why I think as clinicians, it's so important to be keeping up with the recent literature and going to conferences and all of these things that, that make us evolve. As a, as a profession. And I think, you know, here we are talking about solidarity and, and com- communication. It's having difficult conversations with colleagues is, is a piece of that. I think the other interesting thing as we hearken back to the medical profession is that to maintain certain credentials in the medical profession, you have to continue to sit for exams in yeah. different periods of time. And, you know, we get our C's and we're forever competent. Yep. In everything. You know what's so interesting? I was talking to, gosh, I don't remember what discipline they're in. And they were talking about how much their boards are that they have to take every five to 10 years, depending on their specialty. And And thousands of of dollars they put into it just because now, obviously, you know, on one hand, you might say, oh, yeah, but their surgeons are cutting into people. Hey, people die from dehydration, malnutrition, um, infections from pegs and aspiration pneumonia as well. And that sits on our shoulders as well. So sometimes when I hear, and this is kind of going off the rails, but this does relate to SLP solidarity. Sometimes when I hear people blaming ASHA or blaming um, whoever, you know, uh, so-and-so didn't, you know, do that course well. And I'm sitting there going, well, what are you doing? Are you literally, just, you know what I mean? Like you're just complaining about paying $300 or how much ever ASHA renewals and they don't do anything for us. Well, what are you going to do for you then? What are you going to do for you? In, in terms of having difficult conversations, I, this is something that I've posted before and, and on Facebook groups and, and people get um, kind of a little bit angry at it. But, you know, we're, we're not exempt from, from things like lawsuits and malpractice and things like oh, that. And I, and, I just got a letter in the mail. <laughs> oh. For sure. You'll have to tell me about that later. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, we, we do have, we do do things in our practice that could have negative consequences. And, you know, doing something like treating someone without confirming that they actually have dysphagia, to me, is not good practice and could potentially result in a negative outcome. Um, and that is difficult to say, and people will, you know, get angry or have whatever feelings when I say that. But, it's a reality, and I, I don't understand why we ignore that uh, as a profession, as, a, you know, a possibility. Can I say something that's going to get kicked me out of the field, get me kicked out of the field? But, <laughs> but it's, You're to- already on but it's, it's totally editable um, in the event that I decide my career matters more than this podcast. Um, so is there any role that is played related to the fact that our field is more than 90% female in this whole crucial conversation things we're having here. Maybe Ed and Ed and Dan feel like they can't say anything because they don't have the right parts, but, um, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> I'm going to keep <laughs> Alicia, but, but, I'm going to put that out for but, you since you're Miss no, Diplomatic. I'm happy, to, I'm happy to speak to this because I think a lot of it is the, the gender roles that we have superimposed upon women and, and because as speech pathologists, you are the child bearers. And so therefore you are the cooks and the child bearers and the house cleaners. And so because we males have put this role onto you and are uh, many times not willing to share that burden, you don't have time to advance your career in the same way as males because you have many more responsibilities. So that was That's a very PC response and I appreciate that. 
That's really good. <laughs> but, but what I was specifically thinking was the whole idea of solidarity and having crucial conversations. To what extent might this be different if speech pathologists perhaps were 90% male? What do you guys oh. think? Or we'd just punch each other and we'd be done with the conversation <laughs> and, we'd be, and we'd be friends the next day and come to an agreement. I think it, there'd be less tiptoeing. There'd be a lot so, less tiptoeing. Um, and this is... And that's, and that's an opinion. I mean, there's, there's a lot of research that shows, for example, that men are much more likely to negotiate salaries than women. We know this. Women won't ask for a raise, but men will. And women will say, I know that if they just see me working really hard, they'll offer it to me. They'll come to me and I won't have to ask. Right. Or they don't think they deserve to ask. It's this is my job. This is just the role that I that I'm in and and accept it. And so, it's so one thing that I that I happen to know from working with um, somebody who's served as a mentor for me named Molly Carnes, she's an MD, and she studies um, uh, women issues related to in science and medicine, etc. And one thing that um, she's always said is that obviously there's implicit bias, and you guys know that that means that all the things you've heard about a particular group, whether you are in that group or not, um, impacts your your split second decision making about a group. So if you hear the surgeon is coming, you might Im imagine a male coming down the hall. You don't even know if it's a male or a female, but everything you've heard about the word surgeon suggests it's probably a male, right? And so these things happen to men and to women um, because we've had those images and those, um, those that kind of information pushed into our heads long before we were adults. And in fact, studies show that even kids do this. So I say that to say this, agentic qualities, so qualities that are typically male-oriented, um, if a man does these things like assert themselves and people say, oh, he's a leader. He's just being a leader. He's, he has to stand up to these issues. But women are often penalized historically for having these more assertive or domineering qualities. I know I'm one of them, and I have very, very direct communication style because I just don't have time for foolishness. That's just the way I, was, I am. But I often get penalized for cutting to the heart of the issue and saying, we're here for this. Um, oh, yes, 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 your, your blouse is nice. Um, so we're here for this, you know what I mean? And so those, those kinds of things might be at play, and women may or may not know it, and often women penalize women for being assertive as much as men penalize women for being assertive. So when we're talking about difficult conversations and solidarity, sometimes it can be difficult for women um, if they... Un inadvertently give in to some of those um, pressures that they may not even know that they're succumbing to. So it would be interesting to, to <coughs> see what percentage of physical therapists are men versus what, you know, we know in speech pathology that it's very low in the single digits, but what about physical therapy? Because they seem to have more solidarity and say, oh, we all need a recumbent bike. We all need parallel bars. We all need, you know, this these pieces of equipment. They don't seem to have a problem figuring out what they need. 
or getting it. I think part of the reason is that let's say, so physical therapy, my understanding is that it tended to be more male dominated, but it's becoming um, more female dominated. But I think that let's say 20 years from now, it is 80% female. The standard of what a PT needs will already have been established long before the women dominate in number. So that's not going to go away that they need these these things. They, they have a standard, just like if you know, uh, pediatricians, geriatricians tend to be more female dominated. They're not like, oh, we don't need stethoscopes because we're women. We can't ask for those things. It's just a, a known entity that they need these things. So I wonder what if we would really be able to see it in a field where the standards are so clearly delineated. Or perhaps because what we have, what we need has evolved in a very short period of time that that it makes it more problematic for us because it has shifted. And it, so we're kind of more on shifting sand than on a solid ground. I need parallel bars. That's been true for, you know, as long as I know. Right. Um, I mean, but think about it this way. The people who have championed our fields have been women. So it's not like it's it's not possible for women. Jerry Logeman and um, uh, Susan Langmore. I mean, talk about people who had to something that were to really fight about. I mean, people were telling them, you are crazy. They were fighting speech pathologists as much as they were fighting other fields to get the things that we need to us. So whenever I think of that, I always go, there's no way I can complain about anything, not after what those women have done. Right. Well, you know, perhaps it's less about, you know, men versus women and more about the types of, um, communication styles that typically go into speech pathology as a profession. And I know you kind of wanted this to be more off the cuff, but, you know, one thing that um, I wanted to bring to this conversation was um, this something called the DISC, um, D-I-S-C, and it's a, a profile of communication behavior. And this is something that we did at UCSF because um, we realized that in our department in rehab, PTOT speech, there was difficulty with giving and receiving feedback. And so um, my office mate, the OT supervisor, Annette, um, she had us all take this DISC profile assessment to help us determine um, what was our communication style, basically. And I bring this up because you mentioned that you were more dominant, Ianessa, in terms of your, your uh, communication. You were more direct, right? So, so you would fall into the D category in terms of dominance, right? But I think that there are a lot of people in the profession who don't have that communication style. They're more people who are steady, you know, appreciate the status quo. And I think that that's very important. And I know in my history, when I managed managers, I would always have them take personality profiles so that I would understand how to communicate with them to help motivate them to do whatever it is I needed them to do. And I think that, that that is important. But at the end of the day, shouldn't we all be more concerned about our patients than about ourselves? We should yeah. be, but I think, I think we should be, but we already know that self-preservation supersedes effective rehabilitation. We can say that all day and idealistically that yes, yes, the patient first, but we know. I cannot tell you how many times and I use this example because it always rings true. Whenever I do an ESTEM talk, we have these we have people who say, "Oh, absolutely, you know, I, you know, I." They raise their hand or whatever it is, and I'll say, "Okay, great." So everybody knows, you know, what muscles elevate the larynx, and 
it's complete silence. Nobody will admit that they have no clue what muscles elevate the larynx. So now they have no clue that e-stim in a particular location will cause the opposite effect that they've been trained for the past several years. They won't raise their hand and say, so I've been doing the wrong thing. So I agree with you that that should be the case, but oftentimes it's not. Self-preservation is a very, very strong urge very strong urge to not look stupid or not look incompetent and they might go back and secretly fix the issue but they often lose the best learning opportunity in that moment because they're they don't want to be identified as somebody who doesn't know you know that's interesting eastim is always the example and recently there was a facebook post about a clinical fellow who had a question and they wanted to do eastim and multiple times was asked, you know, did this patient have a modified barium swallow or a fees? And there was no response to it. And, you know, I finally said something like, you know, I, I hope that you found the answers that you were looking for. Um, but also, you know, I think it's really important that you do a modified barium swallow before you um, decide to use ESTIM on this patient. Because the, the person had mentioned that they were ESTIM trained and they, and they were going to attempt this with the patient. And the, the entire post was deleted. And I, I, I just, you know, I try to come at it, you know, from a place of understanding, from a place of trying to help. And so, I don't know, do we just need someone out there to say, you know, the be-all, end-all of, of speech pathology and this is what you need to do in order to do e-stim? Or, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not trained in e-stim, so I don't pretend to know. All I know is that I'd want to confirm that a patient actually had dysphagia that could be treated with e-stim before I did it. And I, I don't understand why that's such a difficult concept to grasp, but it seems to be. And, and so I don't I wonder, think it's just with... Go ahead, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say, I wonder, you know, in terms of like, like Spanish language in Spain, they have this, you know, the Academy, the Real Academia Española, that, that decides, like, this is how you speak Spanish in Spain, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, do we do we need a body that says you know this is how you must practice and you know it, are are the ASHA guidelines too general are they too broad do we need something that's more specific I don't know. Well, I think that that it would be more important. Not maybe. I mean, I don't think in swallowing we can say this is always the right thing to do, but I think that it would that it would behoove our profession to be more concerned about science. Because right now, I think that we're just more concerned about doing than we are about doing what we know at this point is right. Right. But mm. I think I yeah. think ESTEM is one of the things that brought it to light, the, the lack of solidarity. If there was anything that was, bi was, that was not bipartisan, it was people being for and against ESTEM. So ESTEM was interesting in terms of not increasing solidarity, but it was also interesting in terms of having cru crucial conversations because it was one of the things that you actually had to know. You're actually manipulating someone's airway, and you needed to know what you were doing with those electrodes. And so it really um, uncovered um, some you know, pretty big gaps in knowledge compared to other treatments where you're just positioning their chin up or down, right, or just handing them a thickened liquid and saying, all right, chug that. So um, that, but even but even with more what I would say benign interventions, like recently there was a very robust discussion about um, thermal tactile stimulation, and it, it was very interesting to me because you know this has been put to rest for many years basically as a treatment approach, 
but how many people are still out there using it on a daily basis as a major treatment approach? Well, because there are still companies, there are still <laughs> companies that are selling laryngeal mirrors and advertising laryngeal mirrors for thermal tactile stimulation. And so oh. it's almost like, you know, we need something like what Facebook is doing to combat the fake news stories. You know, we need, we need, <laughs> seriously, right? Someone, some, I love that. <laughs> some company to be like, this is a fake treatment or, you know, this is not what you should do. It's but an alternative. We don't have that. Treatment. You guys are advocating for the ASHA police. <laughs> there you go. There you go. No, I, so the post was, I, so no one posted anything negatively. It was just quite interesting. You know, I'll, you know, they were posting different things like, well, I use lemon glycerin swabs to do it and I do it nine times. And, you know, and when you look at the Rosenbeck study where he did it 350 times and was saying, we don't understand the, you know, the frequency with which this needs to be done to have a rehabilitative effect. And they're saying they're fixing people with nine times. <laughs> and, um, you know, and no one is saying, well, I did post several articles. I didn't dare comment. I just posted links to articles, um, you know, um, but no one was willing to stand up and say, hey, no, stop doing this. So can we talk about that really quickly? Because um, the, the very interesting thing that I find on Facebook is something that is just a, a reflection. It's a digital reflection of an analog reality, which is when you're in person and having this conversation with somebody and you damn well know that this person is talking some foolishness. And everyone's le everyone leaves the room is like, can you believe she had the nerve to say that she does so-and-so? But I didn't want to say anything, though. I didn't want to say anything, though. And then on Facebook, you don't want to be the person who's calling somebody out because you know you're going to have those people who blame you and call you a cyber bully, right? And that's not, notification it's not even, Oh, absolutely. Or you're going to get reported. It's not at all what you meant. You just wanted to change the scope of the conversation but just by virtue of questioning the extent to some to the extent to which somebody's assertion is based in any truth you are it's almost like you know this that whole thing that's been going on in the media with like elitists and if you have an education then you're trying to stomp on main street and you're like no it's it's just tell me how you know that tell me why you're doing that to that person that's all Right. Well, that's well, one yes. thing about electronic communication where, you know, you don't get the body language, you don't get the intonation. So if you're already sort of like on the defensive, you're going to read any message like that as something that's attacking. Right. You know, what's so funny, Dan, that is so it. funny because hmm. like sometimes I, I read people's posts and I change my like I change my eyebrows and like I soften my voice to like reread it again. So it'll be like if someone goes, <laughs> someone says like... <laughs> Like if like I post something, someone goes, "How do you know that?" I'll I'll, I'll initially read like, "How do you know that?" And then I'm like, no, right. "No, no, 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 no." It could be, "Oh, how do you know that?" Well, that's what emojis are for. They don't oh, work. Yeah, for. They don't work. Sorry, because it's almost no. like, "How do you know that smiley face?" I actually listened to a really interesting NPR about emojis today that got into detail about that. It was really interesting. But I made someone angry last week, I think it was, because I simply said they had recommended someone use the SAFE to, as a bedside swallowing tool. And I just said, just be aware that it's, that it's not been validated. How dare you? Right, right. <laughs> I didn't say don't use it or that's a horrible tool, even though I may think that. I just said, be careful because it's not been validated. And it's, yeah, let me filter my language here, it caused a storm of disapproval. <laughs> really? A storm of disapproval. 
Oh, that sounded like something Ned Flanders would say from The Simpsons. A storm of disapproval. <laughs> well, I, think, well, I, had, I, to, I had to filter what I was thinking. Okay. I, I think a theme that I hear a lot, you know, in this conversation is something that we haven't addressed explicitly is that I find in having difficult conversations with clinicians, like I said before, instead of making it about my opinion, this is what I do, this is what I think, and this is what you're doing, it's, hey... All I'm saying is this is what the research says. It doesn't right? matter. And I think I don't I think I think that's what I think that's what Ed did. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's but I think that's what we have to keep doing, right? Is that and and somebody might get offended, but hey, but and it's like you can lead a horse to water or donkey to water, whatever that phrase is, right? It's like, but we have I think that's the best way to not make it personal is just say, all I'm saying is that this is what evidence-based practice suggests. And that's, you know, you can force somebody to practice a certain way, but you can provide a context of, hey, you do what you do. It's, you, you know, you're your own person, your own therapist, but, you know, and, and there's ways that, to do it too, where it's like, approach I've taken is like, oh, you know, actually I read this really interesting article that showed X, Y, Z. And that's really easy and more face-to-face conversation instead of, you know, mid-conversation just like sliding a research article like in their folder as they're standing there. We just like, oh, I saw this really interesting article that showed what, you know, whatever. And, you know, I've been taking that approach and, you know, I, I've really found it successful or something. Um, because and, what they showed is that, oh, actually, we can't see physiology in the fair. <laughs> I mean, that's extreme. <laughs> but <laughs> that's you have a study that shows that? But like EMST is a great example, right? Where there are certain things that research has shown EMST is, is helpful with and things that the research just hasn't shown it yet. Not to say that it's won't eventually or that it hasn't but we do have to be very aware of what evidence-based practice is you know showing us right now and I think that that's a good way to to have difficult conversations is through research and I think that you hit on something really important go ahead Dan say your thought and then I'll say oh I was just going to say Yeah, I was just going to say to keep things as objective as possible. It's nothing personal, right? And so, you know, it doesn't matter what side of the conversation you're on, whether you're the one, you know, who's presenting the objective data. It's it's good to have that, to keep that in mind so that you don't make the other person get defensive. And if you are the person on the receiving end of the feedback, then keep it in mind that, you know, this is just objective. It's not, it's not personal. And I think we have to keep in mind as people that are a little more confrontational, I think everybody on this call would probably be comfortable with confrontation that I've had difficult conversations that I initially thought were failed because we have to remember that sometimes people can get, you know, a little bit uncomfortable early and it may seem like the conversation didn't go well, but then when they leave the conversation, they're looking up that research article and maybe they change their practice, but we don't see it. Right. So I think that, we can't be discouraged when people get offended and when people are quick to be defensive and, oh, well, uh, whatever. And then it's like, oh, well, that was a lost cause. Maybe it wasn't. And maybe they left that conversation saying, mm, now that 
that I've had a little time to cool down and think about that. Maybe I should really think about what I'm doing. And I think that's important for us to remember too. And so do you think that maybe gaining perspective and solidarity could begin with maybe bringing to our colleagues research to say, so let's read this article, you know, so I'm not going to say we need to buy this piece of equipment. What I'm going to say is let's read this article or these three articles about how tongue strengthening might occur. And then after you begin that, then have the discussion. So what did we learn from this? Oh, well, strengthening the tongue may have these general benefits. Well, is there anything out there on the market that would promote this in an objective, measurable way? <laughs> and you're such a salesman. It's so fantastic. No, or, I'm really or, not. I, I'm just, or is there I'm anything just, that you're doing that we should be thinking about keeping or not keeping based on this? Right. Right. And I mean a salesman, not of equipment. I mean a salesman of just like leading people. You are like the expert leading people to the water and actually getting them to drink it. <laughs> I, I try. I don't know that I'm successful all the time. No, but I, it, it's all, to me, it's just all in how you approach it. It's, it's your language. Like there's, you, it's this, it makes the difference. When people start to feel like, it's condescending and they're attacked and they're being questioned. It is like, but can we, can we talk about the fact I just, I have to come in on the other end here, which is to what extent does patient care have to suffer because people's feelings are an issue? I mean, there are articles about premature babies who are dying like crazy because physicians were offended that someone found that they need to wash their hands after leaving the bathroom and just before touching a brand new baby. And they were like, it, it was a big backlash at this science because they felt personally offended that someone would think that they would go out of their way to hurt a baby by not washing their hands. This is but that's why I'm saying like but the no, approach but my point matters. Is, my, point is that, my point is that there's a point where it's just like, all right, I agree that the approach definitely matters. You don't just go up to somebody and say, hey, you dumbass, what do you, oh, I'm going to edit that out. Okay. Um, <laughs> hey, you dummy. <laughs> you idiot. Why would you do uh, EMSD or whatever, right? Um, but yeah, there's a way to not, to make it about us and not you. But then there is a point where sometimes you just have to be very direct and say, look, I, this is not personal and preface it, however, but you just have to get to the point and realize yeah. that they might get offended anyway, but the patient at the other end of that clinician is so much more important than this clinician's feelings at this moment. Agree. I 100% agree with you, Ianessa, and I think that there's a time and place for the, you know, and th this is not something that I'm good at, but I've learned out here in California. You have to really try to be, you know, help me understand, right? Help me understand why you did this way. I'm not good at that without sounding condescending, <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> Yes, you did. I, I, I practice. Um, but, the, you know, I always say, you know, there might not be a right, what, one right way of doing something, but sometimes there's a wrong way. Yeah. And if, if I see something wrong, I'm going to say stop, you know, and I'm, I'm going to be direct about it. And I think that there are times where, you know, there are, there are things happening where you just have to say, no, that's wrong. Yeah. And, and regardless of whether or not you're going to hurt someone's feelings. And, you know, physicians actually can be liable if they know they're working alongside a colleague who's doing harm, who is not honoring the Hippocratic Oath. 
And while we might not have that level of, um, you know, scrutiny, certainly I agree with you. The extent to which something is right is really questionable in our field. We're still trying to figure out what works, but we definitely know some things are wrong. And I completely agree that there are times there where you need to say, I, I am liable if I just don't, if my feelings are the reasons why, or I don't like for people to not be my friend. Mm -hmm. Right. But so let, so I, I can't, you know, I'm a consultant of course. And, and so I can't give away a lot of my experiences because I don't want to single out someone who might be listening to this podcast who says, Oh, he's talking about me. But, um, but I find that if you even try to do that in a subtle way, that it becomes very, very difficult. Um, And I will just give a very basic example of I was in a facility and a therapist was literally treating a globally aphasic patient using a fill-in-the-blank worksheet. Oh my god. No, no, and I'm not kidding. And, and, um, you know, and so I very gently ask, you know, so exactly what is the goal (laughs) And and I've been asked never to return to that facility. What? I believe it. I believe it. It's crazy. It's See, and you know what? And the, you know what? It's what Alicia just said, which is maybe by just by dropping that seed and asking that question, they will say, "Okay, we got rid of him, so now we can talk about our issues. We didn't want to air our dirty laundry in front of him, but maybe we should rethink this." So you might have spawned some consideration. Maybe you didn't, but maybe you did just by even I hope so. asking that I question. I hope I did. Yeah. Wow. Well, I hope I did. <laughs> Because I, I don't treat aphasia. That's not my area of expertise or knowledge, but I certainly understand that a worksheet isn't going to help. It's broad. You know, it's, it, that's the other thing, too, is that it's not just the patient's, like, like medical status. It's that they get billed for this stuff. They pay out of pocket a lot of the times. They... It, that's what really gets me sometimes is when I see patients paying out of pocket for therapy that I know is bogus. And I'm like, I mean, it, like you were saying right, today, they're, they're deductible alone, sometimes like 200 bucks. So yeah. Yeah, I had a patient come to me today because he'd been getting he has um, issues with his UES and the therapist has been having him do like, um, tongue lateralization tasks like sticking his tongue out moving it from side to side for therapy and so can i just say that's fake treatment what's that can we put that's fake treatment can we put that on the list of fake treatment 200 deductible out of pocket for it (laughs) and think if you make minimum wage that's more than a day's work i mean you know yep yep and he works a job that is minimum wage and came to me in desperation to say, I've just been thrown around and nothing is helping. And, you know, they were desperate. They took, it was, took everything for them to take a day off of work to make the appointment. And I'm like, this is, this, that's when I get rage. (laughs) That's when I am like, this is not okay. And we absolutely cannot allow this to happen i will right. have you the most like trying like I'm, you just like i am mad like, well and i will tell it, you it, the it one time yeah the one time that i walked away and i don't mind telling this story is 
I went to a facility where um, the therapist was performing oral, quote unquote, oral motor exercises, wagging the patient's tongue because his dentures did not fit. <laughs> and so I, I literally asked, so, I mean, and I literally did say this. I said, so do you think that wagging his tongue is going to build hypertrophy in his gums? <laughs> and, and of course, they didn't know what I was talking about. But the problem that I had was that there was a student that they were mentoring. And, yeah. And, that's and, so, and so I did call the university that where that student attended and discussed it with um, the clinical supervisor there. Yeah. Um, because, you know, so that's the only time I've ever done something like that. But yes, it was like, so this is the straw, right? The camel's back is now broken. You guys have that song, Uprising, um, what's it, Muse in my head right now? Like, yes. That, yeah. that song is just like, we went from, how do we not, how do we tiptoe around feelings to like, this crazy. To like, I'm going to their house I tonight. I'm actually surprised it took this long because usually with each and every one of you on the phone right now, it takes about three sentences for both of us to be up in arms. I know. <laughs> so I think we've been very good today. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I think that, that honest conversations, you know, if we as a profession, we were more willing to be the target of anger with honest conversations, maybe we could get more solidarity in the end. Well, yeah, and, honest conversations and honest looks in the mirror about who we are, right? Everybody, everybody has room for improvement. Every single one of us, not just the people listening, but each of us has a role to play in improving. And the more that we can consider that, um, I think the better we will be as a field for sure. Yeah. Now Absolutely. all I hear is Bob Marley's uh, "Don't Give Up the Fight." <laughs> Get up, stand up. Get up. Oh, I have so many. I have so many songs to go out on now. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this was. I I think we we definitely nailed the right guests with this one. You guys offered so much good critical feedback, and you have had a lot of experience to make this discussion rich. Um, and I didn't know if you had any sort of last words for people who. Um, want to get out there and you know fight the power oh there's another song fight the power um any thoughts flame of flame what do you guys think i just think you know if you're listening most of you know who we are from facebook please contribute to this conversation and let's try to move this forward so that we can make forward have forward momentum and make progress in this area yeah and i hope um you know if you're listening that you just, if you, what you take away from this is that you can be open to feedback and to giving feedback mm -hmm. as well. You know, yeah. don't, don't be afraid to open your mouth and don't be afraid to, you know, receive criticism, you know, as long as it's constructive. You know, I know that I learn something every day at work um, mm -hmm. from the people I work with, the speech pathologist, the other therapists, the physicians and the patients. And, and so you just have to be open to it. And, yeah. and that's how you evolve as a clinician. And I, I've learned so much from the three of you just having conversations about, hey, would you do this with this patient? Hey, look at this patient. What would you do? And saying, oh, I would do X, Y, Z. I, I wouldn't do that, but here's why. And I think that if we all can be more open to have those types of conversations and just do, do I dare say swallow your pride? <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, I, I will also say that on Facebook, um, 
if you see any of our names in the comment area, please lower your heart rate. You know, we are, (laughs) we're nice people. And if we've ever said anything to offend you in the past, please forgive us because we absolutely, we just care. We care too much. Maybe that's our problem. We care too much. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we might come across as something different than you wanted. But we, a lot of people on Facebook are really just fountains of, of knowledge. And so we should be taking advantage of this free resource that we have. Um, But we can only do that if we're receptive. Mm -hmm. And definitely message us. And by us, we mean Dan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I just see my inbox blowing up. Personal email. Oh, that's a rookie mistake. Hey, you know what I would like to do? I'd like to have more researchers join these forums because I think it would be really contribute to the conversation. Um, So that's my shout out to to all of the academics out there that research these things to chime in on these forums and, and voice an opinion. I think it would, um, I think it would make a big difference. I think it's, it's, um, yeah, that's why. Yeah. Susan Langmore, if you're listening, (laughs) we have to help her out. (laughs) So getting edited out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right, y'all. It was great talking to you. We'll be in touch. Let's hope this recorded. Get up, stand up. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thank you. Stand up for your right. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your right. Get up.